everyone. My name is Ricky Lee Grove, and you are listening to The Paperback Show. Today's episode is on the writer Daphne du Maurier. I think one has to choose, you know, either to create after one's fashion or to be a woman and breed. The two don't go together and never will. Maybe there should be a rule against women who work marrying. They can't have it both ways. Daphne du Maurier wrote these sentences in 1948 to Ellen Doubleday, wife of the publisher Frank Nelson Doubleday, during a period in which she felt her marriage, she had three children, was over. She was in love with Ellen and was sharing everything with her in an attempt to woo. Gender and power were at the center of Daphne's life and had been since she was a very young child. The entire du Maurier family, three girls, with Daphne being the middle, lived an exciting theatrical life with nasty secrets buried beneath their facade of happiness. Daphne wanted to be a boy and was determined to do things her own way, while her mother seemed jealous of her father, Gerald's, the famous theater actor-manager of the time, who doted on Daphne obsessively. The entire family's attention focused on the father, but Daphne would have none of it, and Gerald was fascinated with that. So much so that at one point he declared that he wished he could have been Daphne's son. I'm only touching the surface of her strange family life which shaped her views of men and women for the rest of her life. The neurotic family was also at the core of everything she wrote with its power struggles, secrets, lies, and manipulation. Daphne de Murray was also bisexual and spent a good deal of her life denying it but not enough to keep her from having sex with both men and women during her long and very productive life. It's curious how Daphne was able to distance herself from the truth, and yet she is the most unsentimental writer you can imagine. Her way of rationalizing her sexual desires for women was to think of her boy in the box, a phrase she invented as a young girl, and that it was the boy slash male who was attracted to women. This split in her mind led to an amazing ability to write about the power struggles between women and see the perspective of both genders. Also, it set a lifelong theme of secrets uncovered in all of her fiction. Things are never what you think they are in a Daphne du Maurier story. It's one of the things that make her work so compelling. Life with servants, money, and influence just made Daphne de Maurier more annoyed at life, although she didn't complain about the benefits. Up to her marriage to a perfect-looking military man, she was moody and often spiteful, but she read and read and read. I suspect it was an escape for her, much like it was for me. Her marriage to Major Frederick Browning, nicknamed Boy, <laughs> It's ironic, because that's exactly how he was. Shocked everyone, because Daphne was anything but the traditional woman with maternal instinct. But she got married and had three children. Frank was away often on training or in actual fighting in World War II, which I suppose suited Daphne. She ignored the two girls, but lavished her intention on the boy, Christian. Eventually, the marriage began to fray, though. By now, Daphne, through family connections, had started publishing stories and novels. And when her Rebecca novel came out in 1938, it changed her and her family's life completely. 
Rebecca has never been out of print, and it made her an international star. The book's success also boxed her into the role of woman's writer or romance writer, because that's how they sold it. However, anyone who has read Rebecca, or any of her novels for that matter, will tell you that it's anything but a romance. She invented her own type of story, a Victorian novel in overall style, but very modern in how she treated gender, power, and family secrets. Her relationship with Gertrude Lawrence, a wonderful actress who was performing in Daphne's play September Tide, 1948, when they met, was one of the most powerful of her life. In the early 1950s, she was staying with Gertrude in Florida on the beach and loving every minute of it. They took pictures, which eventually wound up in her husband's hands. Apparently, they confirmed what he already knew and he sunk deeper into alcohol and despair. Daphne and Frank Browning never divorced, although they were disengaged as a couple. Daphne had found a remarkable old mansion in Cornwall, her favorite place, that they rented, called Menabilly. She had a small cabin built on the grounds and wrote many of her novels there. Here's a description of her writing schedule. Daphne started writing in her cabin at 10.15, and yes, 10.15. She was very particular and punctilious about schedules. She'd write until 1.15, broke until 3.15, and continued writing until 7.15. She had an oil stove and an oil lamp in her cabin, and the wind would whistle all day. She would wear two sweaters and a rug over her knees to keep out the cold. This is according to her excellent biographer, Margaret Foster. I recommend. After the death of Gertrude Lawrence, it left Daphne catatonic for days. She settled into a regular life at Menabilly, a rented eccentric home. Long walks, fussing over her son Christian, and writing and writing and writing. Writing seemed to be her raison d'etre. Several films were made of her novels, but only one meant anything to her. Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now from her absolutely brilliant short story. She loathed Hitchcock's The Birds. It seemed that film adaptations turned her books into love stories instead of the anti-love stories they actually were. The power struggles in marriage were what she was interested in. Later in life, she was living reclusively, but still writing and writing, although less so. She never had hits like Rebecca and My Cousin Rachel again, but her books were respected. Her son, now on TV as a director, encouraged her to consent to interviews, which were fascinating, but very presentational. She said what she thought people should hear. I'm glad we have them, though. She wrote a book on her beloved Cornwall, and a kind of memoir, although much of it's presentational. But eventually she ran out of steam as a writer. And when she simply couldn't write anymore, she simply decided to die by refusing food and stay in bed. And indeed, she died in April 1989 at Menabilly in her sleep. Daphne de Maurier is known today primarily through the movies that were made from her books. <laughs> it's interesting that 
People who watch the movies often think they've actually read the books. Rebecca is the one that most people read, and she is considered a romance novelist, even today. But who Daphne actually was is fascinating. She loved plants, nature, and walking. Her books were filled with glorious descriptions of nature. She loved to research her stories and spent time corresponding with experts and historians. Daphne de Maria also wrote some of the most interesting biographies. One of Bramwell Bronte, the only male in the Bronte family. Gerald, her actor-manager father. And the story of her entire family, the de Mariers all of which are tightly written, unsentimental, and revealing. She was as good with nonfiction as she was with her fiction. Daphne de Maurier deserves more respect from readers, critics, and historians. Margaret Foster's 1993 biography goes a long way to put her life in perspective and bring out the truth. Nina Auerbach's book, The Haunted Heiress, from 2000, goes even further in revealing the true face of Daphne de Maurier, and Nina's obsession with her books, which started as a teenager reading by flashlight under the covers. As far as paperbacks, Pocket Books published the American paperbacks of her novels. The covers were wonderful, if old-fashioned. Penguin in the UK published Daphne in paperback. She almost went with Pan Books. She had a very high money offer of them, but she liked the very respectable Penguin. Late in life, though, she changed her mind and when she needed money and went with pan books. We'll be sure to feature covers of many of these books in our gallery. Modern paperbacks of Daphne du Maurier's works are primarily published in the large trade paperback format. They're still marketed as romance or gothic romances. My favorite printings are those from Avon books in the 1970s. They do have romance covers, mostly but they're fairly easy to find and stand up to repeated readings, and they look good on the shelf. Well, that's our short biography of Daphne du Maurier. She's a fascinating writer. After this musical interlude, we'll be talking to Greg Heron about our favorite Daphne du Maurier novel, My Cousin Rachel. So stay tuned to the paperback show, and we'll be back in a minute. Welcome to the second half of the paperback show. In this section, we'll be talking with author Greg Heron about Daphne du Maurier and her 1951 novel classic, My Cousin Rachel. Hi, Greg. Hey, Ricky. How you doing? Thanks for joining me here today. Glad to be here. Mm -hmm. Greg Heron is an award-winning author of over 40 novels. I didn't know it was 40. An editor of over 20 anthologies. He has also published over 50 short stories. He's won two Lambda Literary Awards, an Anthony Award, two Moonbeam Medals for Excellence in Children's Young Adult Fiction, and, is, and has been nominated for numerous other awards, including the Shirley Jackson Award. 
His next novel, the, A Streetcar Named Murder, under the name T.G. Heron, will release in December. And I want to talk about that in particular because you said you got your inspiration from a Daphne du Maurier story that we both admire very much. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Greg is also a friend and a person who gave me the idea that perhaps Daphne du Maurier is not a ro the romantic novelist I'd imagined her to be. I appreciate you putting that little uh, nugget in my brain and breaking through those uh, preconceived notions about Daphne du Maurier. Oh, uh, she's been a favorite of mine since I was a teenager. So I was always really surprised that her books were always packaged in a way that targeted them toward women romance, romantic suspense writers. And then you read the books and they're not really. <laughs> well, why do you think they did that? And um, why do you think even today people still continue that idea that she's a romance writer? That's what kept me from reading her. Um, I think it's a lot of it had to do with she really became famous with Rebecca. And Rebecca really, on its surface, looks like this really great romantic suspense novel. And that kind of labeled her as a romantic suspense writer. And she often wrote about, she was a female writer writing mostly about women. And that was really how they marketed books towards women at that time, is, as romances. Um, yeah. I found her during the period, the early 1970s, when I believe Bantam was re-releasing all of her books and they had branded them very specific, the covers very specifically to look very romantic. Like there was always a busty woman being hugged by a man, a roguish looking man from behind. And some of her books, I can see where they would get that that conception that they were a romantic suspense, but they would never sell as romantic suspense today because for one thing, most of her books don't have happy endings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's romance readers would not stand for that today. Uh, she's often, yeah. She was often lumped in with Mary Stewart and Charlotte, not, excuse me, not Charlotte, Phyllis Whitney and Victoria Holt as the big romantic suspense writers of, this, of the war period and the post-war period. But even Mary Stewart isn't really romantic suspense. She simply wrote crime novels, suspense novels with women, as young women as the main characters. And she often, there, there was always a romantic interest for the women in Mary Stewart's books, but I always kind of got the impression they were just kind of thrown in because the publisher or her agent made her do it because it's really the romance is what romance there is in Mary Stewart isn't really the point of the books. It's a, it's an, it's right. like they're almost like afterthoughts. And the Du Maurier's books, I mean, I read The King's General. I don't know if you've read that one, but not yet. But it was really presented as this his beautiful historic period romance, and it's really dark and cynical and, <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, and it's based on a true story. I mean, it's an actual true story. And so I'm reading this expecting the war romantic novel about the English Civil War, spoiler alert, expecting the heroine and the cavalier king's general that she's so madly in love with to like escape to France or something together at the end and said, oh no, two thirds of the way she's thrown from a horse and paralyzed. 
and ends up dying alone. <laughs> yeah, hardly romance yeah. affair. There. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was a shock. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> Perhaps another um, reason why she's considered a romantic novelist, in addition to her publishers just pub promoting her that way and selling her that way, are the films that were adapted. Yeah. Uh, from her work. So the earliest one, I think, was Olivier and Joan Fontaine Rebecca. in Rebecca. Yeah. Rebecca, I think, was the first. And I think Jamaica Inn was the second one. Hitchcock did Jamaica Inn as well. But the difference being that you also have to understand that, taking into consideration that when the films were being made, they were under the Hayes Code, which did not permit Du Maurier endings really. Um, yeah, yeah. You couldn't get away with crimes. You had to be punished if you did something bad. And so Du Maurier was all about, you don't necessarily get punished for doing bad things in this world. She had a very, mm -hmm. she had a very dark and cynical and unsentimental view of the world. And that really came across in her books, which again, always surprises me because Again, people tend to group her into this category that she really doesn't belong in. She also didn't fit neatly into any box as a writer because she wrote all kinds of different things. She didn't just write uh -huh. Rebecca books like Rebecca and My Cousin Rachel. She also wrote biographical fiction about her family. She wrote historical novels set based on true events that happened in the past. And she stuck to the story pretty much whenever she was doing something historical. She pretty much stuck to the real story. She didn't, and in real life, there's no happy endings. And she was very happy to oblige that in her work. So, right, exactly. I think the hey, you're right about the Hayes Code there. But I also think that, in a way, a, a great book I read about her was by Nina Auerbach, called A Critic. Uh, uh, called Daphne du Maurier, Haunted Heiress. And in it, she suggests that Hitchcock, who apparently through his letters just hated du Maurier's fiction, <laughs> um, fixed du Maurier in a way so that he was making uh, a story that she should have written mm. instead of the story that she actually wrote. And I think a lot of people uh, get their impression without without even having read Daphne du Maurier by just simply watching the movies watching. that she's a romance novelist. Yeah, I think that really is especially true. The tweak that Hitchcock made to Rebecca to get it past the Hayes Code shifted what the book really was about. In which, in the book, spoiler. But can you really spoil a book that came out in the 1930s? Yeah, right. In the book, Maxim very deliberately shoots and kills Rebecca. And the movie, oh, yeah. it was an accident. And he, just, yeah. he assumed that people would think he killed her. And so he tried to cover it up, her death, cover it up that way. But that's a significant tweak to the story because it changes everything. Because... Mm -hmm. When you read Rebecca, and one of the things that's interesting to me about Rebecca, and I've talked about this with other people who've read the book, people who read Rebecca generally don't read it only once. They read it multiple, multiple, multiple times. I go back yes. and read it myself every few years. And every time I read it, I read it 
in a different way or see something that I didn't see before, which I think is part of her genius. You can't read her work the same way twice. It's always different when you go back to it. I came to a realization about Rebecca, both book and movie, probably in about 10 years ago. I had always wanted to retell Rebecca from a gay male point of view with a male, gay male character as the main character instead of the, right. the simpy, wimpy second Mrs. D. Winter. And I also believe, because I, I also was thinking that if you tried to update Rebecca to the modern time, no one would really like it because the main character is so simpy and right. and wishy-washy and the only she doesn't even have a name in the novel she doesn't even have a name and it occurred to me that about 12 12 years ago maybe i don't know i i have no concept of time anymore but the only way that i felt you could really make that story work would be to make the main character a young gay man who's been oppressed and closeted most of his life, which would make him very, very timid and starting to come out into the world and then meets a right. wealthy millionaire, right. millionaire who exposes this to this entire new world. And then it occurred to, so I was, thought, well, what, one of the major problems with that also is that you couldn't do the marriage thing. <laughs> before before um, the Supreme Court ruled that you couldn't really do the marriage thing and marriage is always, the key linchpin of Rebecca, why he had to kill her in the first place. And when once the Supreme Court ruled, I could do it. And then I read the book again, and it occurred trying to get to the heart of what it was. And I read it in a completely different way than I'd ever read it before. And now I'm convinced that that is the right way to read Rebecca. And that's that if you really stop and think about the narrative the main character is talking to you. The second Mrs. DeWinter, who we never know, right. never know a first name for. And basically what she's trying to do is convince you that what she and her husband did was justified. Mm -hmm. Rebecca deserved to die. I deserved to, my husband deserved not to be punished for it. And I helped him cover up his first wife's murder. And, Yep. And that gives it a whole different perspective of she's lying to you. She's telling you what she wants you to believe and what better way to convince you that they did the right thing than by making herself into this mousy little victim. When she's really not a mousy little victim, if you think about the opening of the book where she talks about what they're doing now mm -hmm. and after she finds out what really happened to Rebecca, her personality changes completely. Oh, yeah. She becomes a completely different person. Yeah. You get the feeling that she's uh, in complete control at the beginning of the book. Yes. She's running. She decides what they do. Where they go, yeah. what they do. She tells him what to eat, what to wear, what to do. Yeah. She's, she's become Rebecca, the Rebecca yeah. that she's written about. She's become. Fascinating. And that's what made writing. So when I wrote my pastiche of the book, that was the perspective I was coming from. He's trying to convince you that everything was justified. Right. And 
you can't, which makes the narrator of Rebecca the greatest unreliable narrator of all time. <laughs> right. Well, you know, gender was a, a, a major thing with uh, Daphne du Maurier as she was growing up. She felt she wanted to be a boy. She had what she called the phrase, she was had a boy in a box yeah. that she had to repress. And that only came out when she ended up uh, falling in love with Ellen Doubleday of the uh, Doubleday Publishers. And she let the boy out. And that's how she kept herself from the her her guilt or worry about being a lesbian. Uh, I, in fact, she had a separate word for it being a Venetian, she called it, you know, but she wasn't a lesbian. She was just letting the boy in her out. So it was a man falling in love with another woman. Yeah. Those men, those mental gyrations that she put herself through are threaded through all of her work. Oh, absolutely. There's, I, it's, she was completely unsentimental about about the world she lived in and the world she wrote about she was very there's not a bit of sentimentality in her books and her short stories at all yeah. even and when she if she gets you even thinking that she's going down that road then she slaps you in the face <laughs> and that's, that's right and it's like whoa did not see that yeah. at all you know, a romance usually ends up a traditional romance usually ends up with a woman seeking domesticity or in marriage. You know, she ends up marriage uh, winning the man that she loves. Well, I don't think that occurs at all in Daphne du Maurier. Never. In fact, I think I think she is enormously suspicious of love. Um, she, in fact, uh, uh, Nina Arabex uh, quoted. She said. She wants to write about the balance of power in marriage, not about love. And she does, and that's very accurate. Um, that's Rebecca's all about power and who has the power in the marriage. And the and the contrast between Maxim's first marriage, where he had no power, his second marriage, where he has all the power, even though he eventually ends up surrendering all of the power. <laughs> yes, yes. Which is, which is really interesting. My cousin Rachel is kind of, as you said in your one of your emails, is kind of the the flip side of Rebecca. In right. Okay, now we're going to see it from a young man's point, a mousy young man's point of view, an, an experienced uh -huh. young man's point of view, and how he gets involved with this sort of thing. Which I did. I came to my cousin Rachel late. I actually didn't read it. Daphne, I have this very peculiar thing about dead writers and that I don't ever want to finish reading all of their books because I always want to know that there's another book still. Oh, marvelous. And so I have not read all of Du Maurier's novels and I'm not, I'm getting to the point where I pretty much have read all of the short stories because it becomes, her short story collections are complicated because they often overlap. Uh, right. Echoes from the Macabre, which was the first short story collection of hers, which was my first introduction to Du Maurier in 1972 or 1973, I believe, contains Don't Look Now and the Birds. But if you look up short story collections by Daphne Du Maurier, two other collections will come up as Don't Look Now and other stories and the birds and other stories. So right, a lot right. of her stories got reprinted in the same, like, each collection will have almost all the same stories and maybe three different ones that you haven't yes. before or aren't, aren't collected anywhere, which becomes really irritating when you're trying, oh, 
I have to pay full price just to read these three stories. I know, I know. Well, it's, it, 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 I'm sure it's keeping her estate going. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, now that we've segued into my cousin Rachel, let me do a quick plot uh, summary, very short. Um, Ambrose owns a large country estate on the Cornish coast in England. He's the guardian to his cousin, Philip, who lost his parents when he was young. Their relationship is very close. But when Ambrose goes to Italy during the winter months, Philip doesn't hear from him. He starts worrying. Eventually, he gets a shocking letter that Ambrose is getting married. He's a confirmed bachelor, and he's getting married to the cousin of theirs, uh, the Rachel of the title. And he's staying in Italy for a good while. Eventually, Philip travels to Italy to see Ambrose after a particularly worrisome letter and find that he has died and his wife, Rachel, is nowhere to be found. He meets with a sleazy financial manager, maybe, of Rachel's named Reynaldi. Philip is, he's a wonderful character. I love him. Philip is convinced that something is very wrong about Philip's death. Two weeks after Philip returns to his estate in Cornwall, uh, which we, he will inherit when he turns 25, he's now 24, Rachel contacts him to tell him she's arrived in London and wants to meet him. Philip is angry and suspicious of Rachel until he meets her. When he does, he's enchanted. The rest of the story is Philip falling in love with Rachel and his eventual giving her the estate, monies, and all of the jewelry owned by the Ashley family over many generations. He asks Rachel, Rachel to marry him, but she suddenly puts him off, or does she? That's ambiguous. Eventually, tragedy results from Philip's increasing suspicions and fears. The story is told from Philip's point of view, sort of the reverse of the Rebecca scenario which is told from a young woman's point of view. Did I leave anything out in that summary that you think is important, Greg? Um, no, I don't think so. That pretty much is the story of the book. Um, like I said, I had come to my cousin Rachel late. Um, usually, like I said, I usually reread, I reread Rebecca every couple of years. I haven't since I actually wrote the pastiche now that I think about it. It's been a couple of years since I've reread the book. But I, I, I revisit her work periodically. I have not, I started, my cousin Rachel was recommended to me by my friend Megan Abbott about nine years ago. She was- Oh, I love her. Yeah. Loves Du Maurier also. And we were, we were talking about Du Maurier and she'd asked me, and you, of course you love my cousin Rachel. And I said, I actually haven't read my cousin Rachel yet. And she said, oh my God, you have to read my cousin Rachel. This is your assignment. You must read my cousin Rachel. And, <laughs> and I had actually um, had purchased mm -hmm. a book club set of Du Maurier's books. Um, back in the day, book clubs, you know, like book of the month club, double day book clubs used to do special edition collections where they all were the same edition of certain writers, right. certain authors. And when I was a kid, my dad had the Hemingway and Faulkner, which is how I read Hemingway and Faulkner. And then I, through eBay, I discovered that they had done this for numerous other authors, including Du Maurier. And I had ordered the set, which includes my cousin, Rachel. <laughs> right. And so I actually read it originally in, in the hardcover, in the hardcover book club edition which matches Rebecca and Jamaica in. They look really nice on the bookshelf. I'm kind of weird about right. the books. But yeah. I sat down and I started reading it and the opening line 
Demoria was great at openings too. It's like they used to hang men at what was it? They used to hang men at four tidings back in the day. Right. And then she circles back around to that at the very end, which she's genius. Yeah, they it's a gibbet. They used her father has yeah. The father has taken him to see this gibbet of a wife killer. Yes. They used to hang men at four turnings in the old days. And Ambrose has taken him there to see the dead man hanging. And then at the very end, they used to hang men at four turnings in the old days. Not anymore, though. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And I'm always amazed at how people wrote before computers. (laughs) 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 I I bought... The Rebecca notebooks, which is her her journals in the notes while she was make, writing Rebecca, and just the concept of having to type everything on a typewriter, and then when you make a mistake, you basically have to tear the page out and start over again. And people right, actually right. create and write at the typewriter, which I can't imagine. I mean, I do it with a computer. But I can't imagine doing that with a typewriter. But how she would do that, how she did that with my cousin Rachel, and how you never really are sure, just like with Rebecca, it's much more clear in my cousin Rachel than it was in Rebecca. Rebecca very much makes you believe the the main character and you believe everything that she's telling you. My cousin Rachel, about a third of the way into the book, you begin to realize I don't know that I can trust this narrator completely. Yes, yes. And what what he's telling me, I don't know if it's true or not. This is how he's, this is simply how he sees everything. And he's very different than um, Mrs. De, the second Mrs. De Winter in that she's very, you never question her mental state at all, except that she just feels sad all the time right she feels so unworthy of everything she really needs some xanax but um (laughs) but but you wonder about philip but philip you he doesn't really seem like he's 24 years old yeah yeah he seems very childlike and very young and very innocent and very naive and with very very little experience and when you start and when every time that it after a certain point in the book, when you're reminded of his age, it's a shock. It's like, because you start thinking he's like 14 or 15, but he's, led, mm-hmm. he's led this incredibly, incredibly, incredibly sheltered life. Yes. Yeah. Where he only had the servants and some friends of the family and Ambrose and everything yeah. self-contained within the house. So he has absolutely no experience with the outside world and what people are like. And so right. you can so you go back and forth between the no 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 don't do that don't give her all the money don't give her all the money don't give her all the money that's what she wants to well maybe he just sees her that way yes uh-huh i got that feeling uh, in the build up to her arrival when he was creating all of these jealousy and and anger scenarios with her which all fell apart when he met her mm. And I thought, well, that's very strange. And I started to think that, well, perhaps he's not all there. He's not telling us the truth. He's not telling us the whole truth. And we also don't really get a sense of Ambrose 
except his sense of Amber, who Ambrose. Yes. Uh-huh. And we don't, and he owes everything to cousin Ambrose. Cousin Ambrose took him in, cousin Ambrose gave him a good life, made sure he was fed and clothed and loved and educated. He's devoted to his cousin, but his cousin again is a confirmed bachelor. Yes. What's that about? And mm-hmm. then there's that whole, there's also a weird undercurrent dynamic relationship between Ambrose and Philip where again, like you said, Philip is jealous of Rachel. Ambrose left me for this other one, for this woman. Yes. And you never really get a sense of, there's always that underlying hostility of, well, what exactly was, how close were Ambrose and Philip? Yes. <laughs> and given Du Maurier's own proclivities and issues and, um, how she dealt with her own sexuality and the boy in the box and so on and so forth. She left that very deliberately ambiguous, I think, that yeah. most readers in 1951, when the book was released, probably wouldn't read that into it, but we certainly can in today's times. It's like, well, what, sure. was, what was going on? What was going on in that house? And then we are, we're also never really sure if Ambrose was completely sane either. Mm-hmm. Was she, he believes she was trying, after he marries her, he believes she was trying to kill him. Was she, or was he, or was he losing his mind? Is she an innocent victim of Ambrose's delusions? And I believe, I don't remember at the end, they do say coming towards the end, I believe there was something wrong with Ambrose's brain. He had a tumor or something. Right. Tumor. Right. Which could have affected his behavior and his paranoia and induced yeah. all of that. So it could, all of it could have been simply in Ambrose's mind and in the letters that he wrote to Philip and she was just at mm-hmm. the party. We never, we never know. We, yeah. we never really know. And I, that's one of the great things about Du Maurier is that she lets you ambiguity is such a great great factor in it i also think that perhaps marriage is deadly for women in du maurier's novels because all of the wives end up dying or being murdered yeah and that the and perhaps the real relationships that she seizes having real substance is the relationship between the men just as the real in in rebecca the only really strong relationship, if you look at it in those terms, the really the strongest relationship in Rebecca is between Rebecca and Mrs. Danvers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So again, the strongest relationship in my cousin Rachel is really between Ambrose and Philip. The strongest relationship in Rebecca is really between Rebecca and Mrs. Danvers. She doesn't really get into the whole that whole um, male-female thing as as much as right. interested in the relationships between people in the same gender. I think that the fl- I haven't read The Flight of the Falcon in a long time, and it's that's another one that's a real favorite of mine. But that one has a very strange relationship between brothers. As right, well. yes, I remember reading about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward. That's one of the great things is you get. It's so exciting to have so many great novels ahead of me. I haven't read House on the Strand or Jamaica Inn yet, and I'm really looking forward to that. I've not read House on the Strand. I've not read Rural Britannia, and I only recently, like within the pandemic, since the pandemic started, 
that's when time really gets iffy for me, was when I finally read The Scapegoat. I had read Jamaica Inn and Frenchman's Creek when I was a teenager, but I didn't care for them very much. I think the reason I didn't care for them very much is because they were sold to me as one thing, and that's not what they were. Right. Yes. Yeah. I I would probably enjoy them more as an adult going back and rereading them, and I probably do that. The House on the Strand interests me because it's bizarre. (laughs) Yes. It's very, 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 very strange. And so I'm very curious to see how she worked like it. Have you read The Scapegoat? No, not yet. The Scapegoat is another one that's fascinating in that it's about lookalikes. Yes, yes. And that's almost a cliche now, in like in, in fiction or certainly soap operas have made lookalikes. <laughs> A trope, but the way she handled it was really, really remarkable. And it was not what you would expect again. But then that's the great thing about Du Maurier is you go in expecting something and it's never, never what you expect. Um, yeah. the short, yes, exactly. The short stories in particular. I know, I know. She's really, really amazing at making you think one thing or thinking that one thing is the most important part of the story only to find out it's not important at all. Right. And this little, little thing she did at the beginning is actually the really most. Important yes. Margaret Foster, her biographer feels that she had more room to experiment in her short stories than in the very tightly plotted novels that she had. And I recently picked up a New York review of books uh, edition of her short stories edited by Patrick McGrath who has just a marvelous introduction of it that included some of her classics, uh, Blue Lenses, mm. Don't Look Now. But the one that really knocked me out was Kiss Me Again, Stranger, ah, which yeah. you yeah. told me was the inspiration for your newest novel. No, nope, not the newest novel. It's something I'm working on. Oh, something you're working yeah. on. Yeah. Um, Kiss Me Again, Stranger. I read when I was a kid. <laughs> When I was like 12, I bought the paperback edition of Echoes from the Macabre. That was my first Amorier. I did not know at the time that she had been the writer of Rebecca. All I knew was that the first story in Echoes from the Macabre was Don't Look Now. And at that moment, in particular moment in time, the film had just come out and was making a big stir. And so I knew I'd heard of Don't Look Now. So I thought, oh, well, I'll buy this. I'll buy this book. It was the dollar twenty-five? I think uh, the glory days when paper. Yeah, Avon, Avon series. Avon, really great yeah. series. Yeah, those were the ones that had the the, the romantic type covers. Yes. The cover of Echoes from the Macabre was very bizarre because the cover was based on the blue lenses, and so everyone had an animal head. All the right people on the cover had an animal head, which was really interesting to me. And then I read Don't Look Now, and I was like, Jesus, this, this is amazing. And then I just kept reading through. And then I realized that I hadn't realized that she'd written The Birds, which is, of course, the final story in Echoes from the Macabre and is much more famous as the Hitchcock movie. But I actually liked De Maurier's version of The Birds. Me too. Me too. Much better. It's much, it's much more paranoid. It's much more intense. It's much more terrifying. And it's much more claustrophobic. Yep. Much more claustrophobic because almost the entire story is contained inside the house. 
<laughs> while while yes. birds are yes. rampage are all around them as they're trying to. She was a she was a genius at creating atmosphere. That was one of the things I love about her oh, book. Yes, that that melancholy tone that she somehow managed to always get where you're just oh well you're just drifting away on this little lovely language beautiful story and now here comes all the creepy scary oh my <laughs> i know you just sit back and go what and it's all very matter of fact she's just very mm -hmm. very very matter of fact about everything oh and here's this beautiful then you go through this beautiful passageway along the canals in venice and then you you come through to this lovely grotto and oh, and there's your murderer <laughs> waiting uh -huh. for you with the knife. Like, oh my God. Did not see that coming at all. Uh, you did you watch Don't Look Now, the movie? No, I'm I'm saving that until I finish uh, this uh project up and then I'm gonna deep dive into it. The film is extraordinary. Um it's a little bit different than the story in some ways, but it's notorious. It was notorious for the sex scene between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. That's yeah. why it was so famous yeah. at the time it was released, because it didn't look simulated. It actually looked like it, they were actually having sex on camera. Right, right. I wanted to ask you a question before we uh, close up, because we're getting to the end of our time. Oh, wow. uh, and it, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert uh, for everybody. So if you... Um, uh, don't want to know this. This is the time to quit. I wanted to ask you whether do you think uh, Rachel poisoned Philip, or is Philip paranoid and feeling jilted? I think paranoid. And uh, does the answer de depend upon the gender of the reader? Do you think? I think. I think the answer depends on the gender of the reader. I think I think men and women read the book differently. Um, to me, I know that women. And ironically, I think that they have the opposite re reaction that you think they would. You would think that the women would believe that Rachel was not what he thought she was and that the men would mm -hmm. fill up and it's, it's, it's the exact opposite. The men uh, believe that Rachel was innocent and he was crazy and the women believe that he, Rachel was actually a gold digging murderess, mm. which to me, I don't trust Philip, so my reading of it was both can be true i think you're absolutely right that was my feeling too is that damari is such a skilled writer she gives you elements clues that can justify your either con conclusion i think i think it i think that philip was not completely all there in the head and was paranoid and was losing his mind like his cousin ambrose and it was genetic and that Rachel could be, Rachel was a gold digger, was after the money, yep. a manipulative woman who was after the money. Both things can be true. And knowing Du Maurier and her work, that's probably the, the right answer. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. Answer. A confluence of, of two people, two bad people encountering each other. Yes. coming into each other's orbit. I also want to point out that I love the fact, and it's also very telling about Philip's character, is that he never calls her Rachel. He says, my cousin. He always Rachel. says, my cousin Rachel. Always. And I think that is a very key to Philip's mentality yes. and his mental state yeah. and his maturity. Because she's never, yeah. he never sees her as anything but my cousin Rachel. Right, right. And that's a good point.
Where do you think a beginning, a person who wants to break through that notions of Daphne de Maria should start? What do you think is a, a first first read for somebody who's never read her? I well, it depends on what. I think it would depend on what they like to read to begin with. Like if horror writers, if you're a horror, a fan of horror, I would recommend the short stories first because they're very macabre and they're very dark. Right. They take very dark turns much more. Her books are, are less horrifying, I would say. Her, her books are more psychological suspense, I would say. And if I was going to recommend a novel, one of her novels for someone to start at, I would say Rebecca would probably be the yeah, place to go. I think you're right. That's that's a good entryway. But I think Work. you should read Rebecca and my cousin Rachel back to back. Yeah. Yeah. Get two sides of the coin. Where can we find out more about your work and your writing, Greg? Um, I am one of those horrible people who don't have a website. Yes, I don't know how I have a career without a website. But I use my blog primarily as a place for people to find information about me. There's pages on my blog about my bio page and pages about my books and stuff. And that's gregwritesblog.com. Just as it sounds, G-R-E-G-W-R-I-T-E-S-B-L-L-G.com. Right. And yeah, so I have pages on there. I, It's a WordPress thing that I could teach and I'm trying to slowly teach myself into how to do a website for myself. And so I'm doing it. Uh-huh. But I've always uh-huh. I've always kept a blog and WordPress allows you to become a to build out into a website. And that's what I'm slowly trying to do. But I don't have the time to do it properly. So, well, we'll be sure to have the link in our show notes to this. And what do you have coming out uh, uh, soon or or has already come out recently? Um, earlier this year, I had a YA novel called Hashtag She Deserved It come out, which is about toxic masculinity in a small Midwestern town that is pretty much dominated by its successful high school football team. You can't imagine where I got the idea for that. <laughs> and I have a, that new series starting in December called A Streetcar Named Murder, only they're using the name T.G. Heron instead of Greg Heron. That comes out in December. It's um, a murder mystery set in New Orleans in which a young widow, the widowed mother of twin sons who have just left for college gets the mysterious inheritance from a relative of her husband's that she never knew existed and murder and mayhem ensue. Lovely. We'll make sure we uh, link that in the show notes. Well, thank you very much, Greg, uh, for talking to me about this wonderful author. A uh, whole new world has opened up because of your suggestion, and I thank you for that. And thanks for uh, sharing your thoughts today. Well, thanks for having me, Ricky. Always a delight to see you. Okay. Okay.